in this lecture, we're going to cover neurodevelopmental disorders from the DSM-5. And all of the disorders that we'll discuss share one feature is that they occur, or the onset of the disorder is in the developmental period. So we talked a lot so far in this term about disorders and cognition and behavior that can arise as a result of brain injury, stroke, or neurologic insult. This, or the disorders that we'll talk about, also have symptoms of emotional or cognitive dysfunction, but the difference is they are developmental in origin. So the symptoms that we'll discuss all have their onset in the early developmental period. What that typically means is up to the age of eight for disorders like autism spectrum disorder, but it can be as late as 12 for attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. So we'll go through each of the disorders and their specific criteria. Um, all the disorders, similar to the mental disorders you've discussed with Dr. Kirkby, share the feature that they have to be accompanied by impairments in personal, like let's say self-care um, or activities of daily living or social, meaning friendships, relationships, academic, meaning the symptoms can impair their ability to progress on par with their peers in school, or occupational functioning. So each disorder has to be accompanied by some functional impairment. The range of developmental deficits across the disorders can vary from very, very specific. Um, and we'll talk about specific learning disorders, so a specific deficit, let's say, in math, compared to intellectual disability, which has a range of deficits across many different cognitive domains. And then finally, for some of the disorders, there'll be symptoms of excess, meaning like positive symptoms, uh, repetitive behavior, stereotype behaviors, and there'll also be symptoms of deficits or delays, so basically not being able to develop on par with peers in certain cognitive domains. So these are the disorders that we'll cover. We'll start with intellectual disability. So there's two disorders that we'll cover within intellectual disability. One is uh, intellectual disability, and two is global developmental delay. So by the end of this um, section, you'll be able to differentiate between those two. So intellectual disability is the term that you will use. You will no longer use the term mental retardation. According to Rosa's law, this was replaced in all legal documents, government documents, with the term intellectual disability, not mental retardation. Um, and it involves deficits in intellectual functions. What do we mean by that? You learned in psych testing. It's basically your ability to think critically, to reason, to problem solve, to hold in mind different numbers and rearrange them. So working memory can involve visual spatial reasoning, finding out the, the pattern in a set of visual, or an array of visual spatial designs, how they are related to each other. So this type of abstract critical thinking and problem solving. So the test that we use to measure that, um, you're aware of the Weschler Adult Intelligence Scale from your psych testing lecture, includes subtests that assess verbal reasoning, visual spatial reasoning, working memory and processing speed. So this criteria A has to be assessed with some sort of standardized measure. So basically an IQ score. You need an IQ score for 
criteria A. But an IQ score is not enough to diagnose intellectual disability. You have to have more than that. You have documentation or show that there are deficits in adaptive functioning, and that's critical. Again, you cannot diagnose intellectual disability based on IQ scores alone. You have to have or have evidence of deficits in adaptive functioning. So what do we mean by adaptive functioning? Um, that can be conceptual in terms of academic thinking. It can also mean um, social, so some sort of deficits in being able to um, understand or, or maintain social relationships, or practical domains, like just basically finding your way around town on the bus system, the subway system, um, being able to understand and read maps. All of that would be considered adaptive functioning. So for children, adaptive functioning, um, you know, of course, they, they, when they're little, that means things as simple as brushing their teeth or knowing how to change into their pajamas, eventually knowing how to pack a suitcase for the, a weekend at the grandparents. But as people age, adaptive functioning as more like, okay, so maybe 11 or 12-year-old kids can take the subway by themselves or can actually figure out which um, bus they need to get on to get to a new part of town. And then adults, you know, this is mostly about money management, being able to um, keep track of finances, manage medical appointments or complex treatment regimen. Um, so, so for adults, of course, adaptive functioning is measured differently. There is one scale that spans from childhood to adulthood that's called the Vineland, Vineland Adaptive Functioning Scale. But often in adults, when we would have to assess their capacity to understand, let's say, to make medical decisions, we would use the independent living scales, which would assess their ability to do things like write a check. I mean, that's a little bit obsolete now. I don't know if you guys learned how to write checks. I mean, now it's about memorizing your ATM codes. I don't think many people write checks anymore, but tests like that, you will actually have them write it out or count money or give them a bunch of objects to memorize at, from a pocketbook and then say, okay, if one of these were missing, what would it be? So this type of everyday um, memory and problem-solving functions would be considered adaptive functioning. So that's critical, that you have to have assessment of IQ and assessment of adaptive functioning to diagnose intellectual disability. And of course, the onset has to be in the developmental period. So we're talking about assessing adaptive functioning in adults, but the understanding is there's had to be history, some history of intellectual disability in the early developmental period. If they had a stroke and they were no longer to function uh, or their adaptive functioning was much lower, or if they get dementia, that is not intellectual disability. That would be a what? Neurocognitive disorder or uh, dementia as you learned in your neurocognitive disorders lecture. Intellectual disability might share some of the same features in terms of lower IQ scores or adaptive functioning, but it has to have its onset in the developmental period. So uh, you learn from psych testing that the mean IQ score for the Weschler Adult Intelligence Scale and the Weschler Intelligence Scale for children is 100, and the standard deviation is 15. So a score of 130 would be two standard deviations above the mean. Um, and a score of 70 would be two standard deviations below the mean. And 70 is pretty much the cutoff for intellectual disability, give or take five points for measurement error. So um, the criteria is 70. To anything below 70 is considered in the intellectual disability range, again, with a five-point error margin. 70 to 80 is borderline intellectual functions. Um, and then above 80 would be low average. 
but from, again, 70 to 80 is borderline. Below 70, you get into the intellectual disability range. So from about IQ of 50 to 70, and this is the majority of people who are diagnosed with intellectual disability, it will be considered mild. And that means that there's some difficulties in learning, and they need support, and they're very concrete meaning they have more difficulty with abstract problem solving. So if we remember back to Piaget, they have more of that earlier concrete style of thinking rather than being able to abstract. Their social interactions are a little more immature. They may not understand social cues to the same extent um, that of someone with higher intellectual abilities. Um, they can take care of themselves, so they, can, they know to wake up, to get dressed, to brush their teeth. They're very good when things are routinized but they might have more difficulty with complex tasks, like if you t tell them to go to a new part of town and have to figure out the transportation system. So a lot of people that you'll see in, in videos are fighting for rights of people with intellectual di disabilities that are advocates are usually in the mild range. So people with Down syndrome who are now actively fighting for the right to um, get married and live together. So, so a lot of people in this range will live in group homes and need some support. And then there's this big debate over whether they can have the right to get married and live together within a group home. And so there's a movement now in that direction, but it's still actually very rare that that can happen. They have the right to get married, but the problem is um, if they get divorced, then they have to be deemed um, have to have capacity to make decisions. So a lot of times they can get married, but they might not have, may not have as rights as many rights when they want to get divorced. So they need some protection, extra protection, and that's what the debate is about. Um, for people with mild intellectual disability, there it's, it's, there's still some debate over whether they can have mature romantic relationships and understand what that means. But of course, this will vary depending on the person's level. Moderate is a little more impaired. They have a lag in their cognitive skills more so than the, the, the mild. This is about 35 to 55 IQ. Now here's the bottom, the bottom of our IQ range. Most IQ tests do not go below 40. So now we're at the very bottom of the IQ range. About 10% of people with intellectual disability will be in this range. Um, so much more severely limited. Most of them are living in homes. Um, they can communicate, but they have more social limitations. I don't know if you've seen the movie Sling Blade. Um, anyone seen that? This would be, this character from that movie would probably be someone in the moderate range where they, they um, most probably spend most of their time in a home and if they're not in a home they have to have a very routinized um, life and someone helping them or overseeing and they're not good with any change in their procedures so they can learn things and do repetitive tasks. They can work if they're given a lot of structure and there's a lot of repetition or routine. Um, but they can take care of their personal needs once it's become routinized. So the more severe, so approximately 3 to 4% of people with intellectual disability will be in a very severe range. Um, and at this point, they have very limited understanding of language, our numerical concepts. They have um, limited speaking, so they might use gestures or simple words to communicate. Most of them will be in homes, either with their family or in a group home. Um, they can be prone to self-injury, um, and um, they can have depression and anxiety. So people with severe uh, intellectual disability can be prescribed medications for depression or anxiety, or if they are tending to 
hurt themselves, have self-injurious behavior, they might be given medications to deal with that. And then profound is, is very extremely limited. So only 1% to 2% of people with intellectual disability will be in the profound range. Again, this is below the IQ test range. So they're no longer considered testable with our standardized IQ test. It's more about their level of adaptive functioning. So they would be below the IQ range, but severely impaired in terms of their adaptive functioning and really completely dependent on others. They can't take care of themselves at all in the profoundly impaired range. And they can't communicate. It's largely nonverbal. But they can um, watch TV shows. Um, sometimes there's water swimming therapy to, with support, have them in water or go for walks. Um, a lot of times in the profoundly impaired range, it's accompanied by other motor or sensory deficits because it's more of like a severe cerebral palsy or birth def you know, defects that can lead to more profound. So the intellectual disability is probably part of a larger syndrome. Global developmental delay is in children that are under the age of five where they're not progressing on par with their peers, so they're not meeting their developmental milestones across several domains, but they're still too young for standardized testing. Now, there is standardized testing below the age of five, but it's highly unreliable. Um, so they, there are tests that exist. You can get IQ scores for children under the age of five, but it's unreliable. And we know children under the age of five, you, you know, one day they might be perfectly fine interacting with the tester, but another day, you know, they're not paying attention, they're not cooperative, they just have less reliable attentional control. So, um, a, you know, a friend of mine who was actually in, in med school and had her son being tested for New York private schools, of course they test them there at the age of four, so it's still a little bit unreliable. But, um, you know, so she was talking to me about it and how do I get him ready? And I said, well, you know, make sure take him to a person who he gets used to just sitting in the room with an assessor and get him comfortable with it. And so she went through this routine of getting him all ready. And then on the day where he was supposed to be tested for private schools, and it means a lot in New York to get your kids into these schools so the test score can have a lot of weight, he just decided that morning he was going to be a tiger. And he was going to climb under the table and roar every time the person talked to him. So a complete bust, right? And this is a four-year-old because they just don't sit there and do an IQ test because everything is at stake for them. <laughs> they don't get that. Um, and then maybe if they do get it, they rebel and decide they're going to be a tiger for that day. So of course, a good tester will say, this is not valid. You have to come back on another day. But that's a problem with testing three and four-year-olds. And that's a problem with using IQ tests to make big educational decisions. Um, when the tests are unreliable. So, I mean, but this is a reality in most cities where they do this type of testing and children need to get special services, so they are tested. But there's a, 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 good, a good assessor will understand that there are cues you can look for to make sure a kid is giving sufficient effort and really attentive. And it, because it's so unreliable, if you suspect that a child um, has intellectual disability but you can't really trust the test scores yet, you might give them global developmental delay with the understanding that you will reassess after a period of time where test becomes more reliable, so after the age of five. Okay. So let's try this question.
Okay, everyone click in. So in this case, we have a man who is um, getting a, basically a competency eval, whether he's competent to stand trial. And we need to decide whether there's enough evidence to diagnose him with intellectual disability, which would probably mean he's not, there's competency would be considered low. Um, in this case, his IQ is 65. So what range is that? Mild. So if we were to give him intellectual disability, it would be in the mild range, but we have to assess his adaptive functions based off of this stem. And we see here that he's living alone. He's successfully managing the finances and operations across the New York City borough. Again, this is a real case, actually. Um, of a, a, one of my professors was doing this assessment when I was working in Bronx, Lebanon. And he was saying that essentially this guy is, is high functioning. Our tests are, don't do well. You know, if he, he was from, a, his background was actually from the Dominican Republic. And so he'd come to school you know, a little bit, um, some, some language issues, but he was a good student overall, but eventually dropped out, and he kind of was doing really well in terms of the drug trade and had high adaptive functioning, but the IQ tests don't do well in a person like this, so you can't trust the IQ score. And so that's why you have to think about adaptive functioning. So in this case, it would be none of the above. So yes, the IQ score is, I put this here because I want you to realize the IQ score is not the end-all be-all, right? There are a lot of reasons IQ scores go down. There are race effects. There are um, cultural effects. The test was developed by a certain um, population of people, and it might work well in people from a European, of European Caucasian descent, but they work, it lurk, the tests work less well in patients of non-European descent. So there's more measurement error. So that's why it's really important not to base too much on an IQ test alone and to think about other things like adaptive functions. Okay, autism spectrum disorder. There's been a lot of controversy since the DSM-5 was introduced because there's a big change in the criteria for autism spectrum disorder. There are two main criteria now. There used to be three, now there are two. And the two are social communication deficits, social interaction deficits, and restrictive repetitive behaviors. So we're gonna go through criteria A, social communication deficits, and then criteria B is the restrictive repetitive behaviors. So autism spectrum disorder is now a lot broader in the DSM-5. It encompasses a range of different people who used to fall either under Asperger's or autism disorder. Um, now we have autism spectrum disorder. And the deficits in social communication and social interaction manifest as problems with social emotional reciprocity, so what we talked about in the language lecture for social pragmatics, like turn-taking rules, knowing how to approach someone, um, and then knowing how, when, when you're talking, there's certain maxims that we all agree in society, that you um, want to talk and give information that's relevant, that's concise, um, that's truthful, and those maxims can be violated in someone with autism disorder. So they might give you information that you don't know why it's relevant, um, and they, it's not concise, they might go on and on and on. So they violate these kind of social pragmatic maxims of, of uh, linguistic communication. And they, they also have odd nonverbal behavior. So they might not make eye contact, they may not face you in a dialogue, they, they may um, have a wooden posture. So there's basically some oddities in their social interactions that people pick up on. Um, can I get a volunteer to come up and do a, a role play? Someone who's had their coffee, they're awake, 
and they wouldn't mind being in front of people. Anyone want to volunteer? You don't have to know the criteria for autism. You just have to, all right, <laughs> ask me a question. <laughs> okay, this will wake you up. <laughs> now, I want you to approach me, right, as if I'm just a person on campus and ask me how to get to Modica Hall, okay? I'm just standing here, and let's come over here, actually. And you just asked me how to get to Modica Hall. Excuse me? I was wondering, how might I get to Modica? There are four sedans and two trucks and one van in front of Charter Hall, and there are 73 steps to get to Charter Hall, and there are 15 steps to get to the podium, and there are four cars in front of Charter Hall, and there are two trucks, and there's one van, and there's 70 steps. All right, thanks, buddy. Okay. <laughs> right? Thank you. That was what I'm trying to demonstrate there. You did, see, you didn't have, that wasn't too hard, right? You didn't have to have that much coffee. <laughs> Thank you. The point is, in a normal social interaction, it would look very different, right? I'd turn around, I'd say, oh, you just go up the hill, like, right, you'll see, you can't miss it, big view of the sea. Um, I'd face him, I'd probably look at him, might acknowledge eye contact. Someone with all you notice immediately that I didn't turn to him, I didn't look at him, I, was, couldn't, I couldn't leave my routinized behavior, what I was mentally engaged in, I couldn't disengage, and I was very obsessed with details that were of little relevance to the topic of the conversation. My posture was still, and um, not in, in normal conversation, we face each other, if someone asks you something, you turn to them. So they just don't follow those normal rules in social interactions. And they don't have interest in developing and maintaining social relationships, so friendships, normal romantic relationships. I mean, and this varies, okay? So this can be a matter of degree, and we'll talk about that. But in general, there is less interest in maintaining social relationships. Criteria B is restrictive, repetitive patterns of behavior and interest. So it starts with in criteria B1. You have to have at least two of these. Um, stereotyped and restrictive motor movements. So these can be something like they, they might rock and do a little hand gesture. They may, in the middle of doing that hand gesture, kind of make a you know, kind of a repetitive vocalization. And this is calming. This is de-arousing. Um, animals use restrictive, restrictive repetitive behaviors to de-arouse. Animals that are mouse models for autism spectrum disorder will engage in either repetitive, like pulling apart uh, materials for nesting, so it is, and it's a, there's believed to be some sort of calming or de-arousing function to them. Things like toe walking um, would be another, in childhood, uh, an unusual symptom that might have a physician suspect an autism spectrum disorder. They will tend to line up objects in, in a predictable array, like lining up cars, lining up trains, maybe according to some pattern. Um, their speech might show some repetitive features like echolalia. Um, you know, if he asked me where, how do you get to Modica? Modica, 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 Modica. They might kind of repeat that last word. Again, a little more profound um, or a little more severe impairment, um, and that will, will vary, but all people with autism, regardless of the level, will show some degree of restrictive repetitive behaviors. They have a real insistence on sameness, meaning they, they want everything to be the same every day. Like if they go and they, 
I have the same cereal with the same spoon in their favorite bowl, and they sit at the same place at the table. And if those things change, um, it might throw them off, and they might have a harder time adjusting emotionally. They might have a tantrum because something changed in their routinized behavior. So they like predictable routines. They have highly restricted interests. Restricted interests means in one topic. So that can be, for example, an obsession with the dinosaurs or um, you know, different types of you know, planets or astronomy, and they might know everything about that topic, and they, and they want to tell you everything about that topic. And, or they might, and, and I had a, a, a little kid I worked with once who just had memorized the complete, he was only four years old, and he knew the subway system everywhere. He knew the map memorized by heart, and he could tell you how to get from A to B, on the, but just memorize. He couldn't do it in real life, but he was obsessed with the map itself and would study it. And then they also have this other criteria, which is this hypersensitivity or hyposensitivity to textures. Um, now there's a line of clothing that Target put out where they have soft, um, so they don't put the tags on the shirts for, for children with autism spectrum disorder because the tags might bother them, that sensory input. They might have a high tolerance to pain or low, so they just have abnormalities in sensory processing. Um, they don't like loud noises, sudden loud noises. They might respond, and they, it's very difficult then to calm them down if there's some sort of aversive noise or smell. So now they have these sensory gyms for in part, as part of physical therapy for autism spectrum disorder. So the symptoms have to be there in the early developmental period. That's usually diagnosed by age of two. Usually you're seeing abnormalities in social, emotional reciprocity and communication and some sort of restrictive repetitive behaviors by the age of two, but it can be later. The diagnostic criteria allows for onset up to age eight, although predominant, most of the kids will have diagnosis by the age of two. Symptoms can show up later uh, up until the age of eight formally for diagnosis. They have to cause significant impairment in order to meet criteria. So like we were talking about before, across these different domains, social, occupational, and it's not better accounted for for intellectual disability. Now they can have intellectual disability, but the social deficits have to be below what you would expect for someone with intellectual disability. So we talked about how intellectual disability includes some social dysfunction, but in autism spectrum disorder, it has to be lower than you would expect for intellectual disability to get both comorbid intellectual disability and autism, but it is high comorbidity. So again, with, with autism spectrum disorder, you have to have both restrictive repetitive behaviors and social communication. You can't have one or the other. If you just have one, it's a different disorder. It, we'll talk about that, social pragmatic communication disorder. If you just have restrictive repetitive behaviors, it's a different disorder. It's just stereotype movement disorder. So you have to have both for ASD, and it has to be diagnosed before the age of eight, but it's typically by the age of two. Specifiers with or without intellectual disability, with or without language impairment. So that's a big one. Asperger's used to be basically the high-functioning autism without language impairment. Now it's basically autism spectrum disorder without language impairment, without intellectual disability and without language impairment. So um, people, Asperger's people have a big lobby, and so they fought, and they, you know, they didn't like that. They basically lost that, that term. But this is now the new term for Asperger's would be ASD without intellectual disability and language impairment. So you document in your reporting if it's associated with a known medical, genetic, or environmental factor. So medical, there's high comorbidity with epilepsy, so you'd say ASD without 
ID and LD or with ID and, or LD, language impairment, associated with epilepsy or associated with um, Rett's disorder, genetic disorder, fragile X, or some sort of copy number variant, like one of the high-risk autism copy number variations, like um, 16P11.2 deletions and duplications. So you document whether the ASD was associated with a known medical genetic or environmental factor like fetal alcohol syndrome. So that would be part of your documentation. You document whether it's accompanied by another mental disorder like depression or anxiety, and then you would treat the depression and anxiety, or with catatonia, which you know from, from Dr. Kirkby's lecture what that is. Um, you have to dis, dis, determine whether, or do your differential diagnosis, whether it's schizophrenia or autism spectrum disorder with catatonia. So there's not necessarily medications for autism, but of course with associated symptoms. So if they have depression, you treat with antidepressant. Sometimes they're treated with antipsychotic if they have self-injurious behaviors. Or um, let's say uh, if, if they have, let's see, depression, antidepressants, antipsychotics. There's some, there's some newer research in showing that social impairments might be receptive to oxytocin, but that's too new and it's definitely nothing approved yet and it's all kind of in the works. But in general, there are no medications that treat the core deficit of social communication and restrictive repetitive behavior. And then you have the severity level. Like, for example, level one, they, have, they need some support, but with some early therapy and a lot of instruction, they can actually function quite well. I mean, we probably have some students in medical school with autism spectrum disorder, high functioning, because they can, in, in some cases, be extremely, and intellectual functions really high. Usually there's this uneven profile where the intellectual functioning is high, but the adaptive functioning might be a little lower, but with some support, they can actually do quite well. Um, they might tend to gravitate towards clubs that have restricted kind of interests, like computer programming or bioengineering. I heard there's a new bioengineering club, so maybe <laughs> some people with ASD might be attracted to that. So they can function quite well and have good memorization skills. So anyone seen The Good Doctor? Yes. So yeah, that's a good show. If you're interested in autism spectrum disorder, it demonstrates all of these things really well in that show. Um, so level two, of course, there's more support needed. Level two and level three are going to basically have a harder time functioning in society. They'll need a lot more support, a lot more accommodations to um, be able to, to go to school um, level three, of course, is much more severe, so they, they might need a lot more support and be in a group home. Um, but level two is somewhere in between. So with some support, they can function. Their restrictive repetitive behaviors are noticeable, but it, um, they may be able to continue to do things, with if they, especially if they have early therapies to learn kind of how to manage them. But level three is, can be much more profoundly impaired and need a lot more support. Okay, so now we're moving into communication disorders, so language disorder. This is kind of like aphasia, but it's, it's onset is in developmental period. So you have persistent difficulties in both expressive and receptive language, a reduced vocabulary, this is criteria A for language disorder, limited sentence structure, impairments in discourse, so they might not be able to tell a story well. These are kids, it's hard to diagnose until, of course, their language has developed enough, so not until after age four or five when they're, they, you really have at, at that point, you're expecting them to, to have more language functions. But um, and they might show some of the same impairments we talked about with aphasia in terms of naming difficulties, word retrieval. Um, they might make errors in terms of grammatic structure. 
They might have more of a limited ability to express themselves with complex sentences, and they don't develop language skills on par with their peers. So the language abilities are below age expectations. How do we know that? Again, you have to do standardized testing. For a lot of these disorders now, these are ones you have to refer out for standardized testing in order to meet criteria. Onset has to be in the developmental period um, and not attributable to some sort of sensory impairment or motor dysfunction. So you have to rule out hearing deficits um, because that could contribute right, to language abnormalities or any other medical or neurologic disorder. It can't be better explained by intellectual disability or global developmental delay. So what would that mean is there's impairment across multiple domains. This is specific to language, all other domains intact. Okay, so again, diagnosis made before the age of four are probably unreliable. Why? Because their language hasn't developed enough to really diagnose. So if a patient comes to you, and let's say an adult, and they have a language dysfunction, and they have scores on standardized tests, that are below what you would expect for their age, but they did not have any early problems with language in school, that would not be, they probably had some sort of neurologic injury, either a stroke or something damaging their language later on in life. That would be a neurocognitive disorder. It has to have onset language disorder in the early developmental period. So aphasia would be for an acquired language disorder. Language disorder is called, is basically onset and developmental period. Speech sound disorder. That is um, what we know when children have a hard time articulating. They have um, speech impediments, right? You, you, we would call them. They get speech therapy to help them pronounce words correctly. Um, so they might have particular difficulty with certain sounds like L's or R's. And they lisp. They might have a lisp. But in this case, Children with this type of speech sound disorder respond really well. A large proportion will actually resolve with good early speech therapy and can learn to articulate. So there are problems basically in coordinating. We talked about with breathing rhythms, coordinating breath with speech articulators. So being able to make your, your mouth um, muscles move in, in time in coordination with breathing. So a child with speech sound disorder might have a hard time with high, because you have to breathe out high and say high at the same time. They might say I, and then the therapist would have to teach them, breathe out high, so they can coordinate their breath with their speech articulators. Onset again, early developmental period. It's not attributable to some sort of congenital or acquired condition. Medical or neurologic condition like cleft palate might make it hard for them to talk, but that's more of a structural deficit. So that um, would not be speech sound disorder. Technically, you could correct, hopefully, the, the cleft palate, and they could improve. Can't be due to hearing loss or some sort of brain injury. So in general, we know speech becomes pretty much intelligible by the age of four. At two, 50% of it is still unintelligible. So you, it's really hard to diagnose until, again, age four, when they should be articulating certain sounds. But there are some sounds that, some, that develop much later, like th. You know, and so they might have more problems with that. So I'm going to give you an example of a child with speech sound disorder. Make sure we have sound. And Ralph, can we get sound? Hello, Ralph? Sound? No sound yet? Uh, this is the roof, and this is, you look 
sorry, a little technical difficulties. But it really helps to hear. For example, in this case, the kid says, instead of saying the word tree, he says free. Um, he has a hard time with teacup. He couldn't say teacup. Um, you know, I, I did hear from you guys that with the aphasia lecture, sometimes it really helps to hear what it sounds like um, in terms of remembering. So I do want to try to get this right. Let's see if you can hear. No, it's just not. Okay, well, well, we'll come back to it while we... Yeah? Okay. So social pragmatic communication disorder is basically criteria A from ASD and without restrictive repetitive behaviors. So essentially, you have the difficulties in the social pragmatics but without the restrictive repetitive behaviors. And another key differential here is that children with social pragmatic communication disorder might actually seek out social relationships, but they get it wrong. They have a harder time. So they have some deficits that result in functional limitations and, um, and they, and in terms of communication specifically, but it's more that higher order aspects of speech. Remember what we talked about in terms of the right hemisphere aspects of speech, prosody, understanding turn-taking rules, again, those social pragmatics. That's what appears to be the problem in this disorder. Again, the onset's in the early de developmental period, and it's not attributable to basically lower level damage in word structure or grammar, some more of a, a language disorder. They can have a comorbid language disorder, but you can't, basically the, the problems in communicating have to be more with social pragmatics than the actual linguistic problems. And again, not accounted for better by another neurologic condition or mental disorder. And then we have stuttering. And so stuttering is childhood onset fluency disorder. Um, this can be diagnosed anywhere as early as, as two when they start developing language, but typically up in, later by the age of four, it might become more pronounced. It can have a sudden onset or more of a gradual onset. <clears throat> Usually you know, by the age of eight, it's either you know, come and sometimes gone meaning sometimes it can go away, but not all the time. So children will have a harder time when they have higher anxiety. They have a harder time when they're talking to um, friends, when there's social pressure. When they talk to animals, it actually is not so bad, or inanimate objects. So there's, to some extent, anxiety plays a role here. But what this means is they'll kind of get, basically have difficulty, they'll pronounce one sound over and over again. Um, for example, it can be consonants or vowels, so they can have c c c c consonants or vowels. They have a hard time getting it out. The words will be broken. They'll pause in speech. They and it'll look like they're just there. They just can't get it out. So socially, it's very awkward for them. Um, they get very self-conscious, so it, and, and it can very much impair their social functioning, but not because of not understanding social pragmatics, but just because they're embarrassed, because speech is so hard for them. That's what it will sound. And it can persist into adulthood, but in a, a large percentage of people, it will go away. So it causes anxiety, it limits their communication. Onset is in the developmental period, but you can have adult onset fluency disorder. That does occur, but it's not called childhood onset, it's called adult onset. And again, not attributable to other deficits. 
usually diagnosed by age of six, 65 to 85% will recover, and it's often absent when they're singing or talking to inanimate objects. Okay, let's try this question. Okay, so we see a lot of the deficits we talked about in that social-emotional reciprocity with other people, turn-taking, and understanding how to approach other kids. So she's having a hard time, um, and it, it bothers her. She's never had any restrictive, repetitive movements or interests, so we can rule out autism. That, that is what helps us rule out autism spectrum disorder. It also helps us that she probably has some interest. It seems like she has some interest in making friends. Um, with IQ, the problem, let's see, she's on the borderline, 70, 80. So we can rule out intellectual disability, even though there's some evidence of some problems with adaptive functioning here in terms of social adaptation. Still, she doesn't meet criteria for intellectual disability. So this would be social pragmatic communication disorder. Again, just criteria A from ASD, but not criteria B. Good. D. Specific learning disorder is... Um, Basically, we already addressed this to some extent in the aphasia lecture when we talked about dyslexia. Dyslexia now falls under the umbrella of specific learning disorder. And the, the symptoms have to persist for at least six months despite interventions. Slow or effortful word reading, difficulty understanding the meanings of what is read. This falls under the disorders um, that are specific to reading. Um, difficulties with spelling and written expression are problems with essentially written expression. And just difficulties with number sense, facts, or calculation, or math reasoning are basically a disorder of math reasoning. So there's three different disorders within specific learning disorders. You can have more than one. You can have problems with reading, written expression, um, or with written expression and math. So you can have, you code each differently, but essentially this all of these learning academic deficits fall under the, the umbrella now of specific learning disorder. Um, the affected skills are, so again, standardized testing is required to show that they're below age expectations and they're below what you would expect based off their general intellectual abilities. And it causes impairment in functioning. And again, it has to be measured with standardized tests. So you have to refer for an evaluation to document specific learning disorders and to get accommodations. So they become apparent in the school age years, but may not manifest until academic demands exceed capacity, meaning you may not see a reading disability in a child until second, third grade, because there's a lot of range, there's a lot of variability. Now, a really keen person who does these types of assessments can recognize phonological problems, phonological awareness problems very early on, and get early intervention. So the earlier you get intervention, the better. So if a child has some signs of phonological problems in kindergarten or first grade, when other children are just starting to read, then a really good school who's on top of it will actually 
get the reading specialist in and start doing some phonological awareness tasks, a lot of intervention early. And you can rescue a lot of the deficits in reading problems by that early intervention. So basically, the advanced schools, the progressive schools, they got good reading specialists, and early intervention can go a long way. But there will be some slow and effortful reading for the rest of the lives with children with reading impairment. And similar with, with math, they can get early intervention, but it's usually a little slower or more effortful than other kids. So again, not better accounted for by other disorders, impaired sensory ability or intellectual disability. Um, you, can't basically, you can't diagnose this if a child is not in a sufficient educational environment. So if they were never taught, all of this, these learning disabilities are essentially, you, you're not born knowing these things. So you have to be taught, and, and, and essentially children around you are taught the same thing, but you're, the child's not learning it as much as the other children. So you can't diagnose it if a child was never exposed or never had good instruction in their language. So if a child comes from another country and is educated in a new language, they're going to have trouble. But it's not because they have a learning disability, it's because they need to learn the new language. So that may sound obvious, but a lot of times people make mistakes like this in assessment, and it's really unfair to the child because they don't actually have a disability. They just essentially are trying to learn the new language. So this is just what I was talking about, that you can have impairments in reading, written expression, or math, and they're all coded separately, but you can have more than one. And it can be mild, moderate, or severe. So mild, they might do really well with some early intervention and actually not show signs of it. They go to graduate school, they succeed, and, and they might be a little bit more slower in some areas, but they still can do it with compensation. Of course, severe then would be a lot more intensive. They'd have to go to probably special schools with, with learning specialists and, and get pulled out for extra services, but eventually can progress if that learning disability is effectively remediated. Okay, last one is ADHD. Um, you need two, so or there's um, essentially two different components. You can have inattention or hyperactivity. With inattention, you have to have six or more symptoms of inattention for at least six months, right, to a degree that is impairing their social or academic or occupational activities. And if you're older than 17, you only need five. That's a little caveat there. So six in children, but they have to have an onset and developmental period. But if you're asking, talking to an adult, they may have actually matured a little more, and so you only need five in adults. So lack of attention to details, difficulty remaining focused. Um, they have a lack of follow-through, what's called, and they may not have task persistence. Their rooms might be messy. Their desks are messy. It's disorganized. They'll lose things, forget things, distractful. So all of that is on the, basically a spectrum of inattention, whereas hyperactivity and impulsivity is more like this kind of motor restlessness. They, they are fidgety. They can't sit down. They have to get up and walk around. They can't just sit and do a task all day. With most of our academic um, environments require kids to sit in a desk for long periods of time. This is very difficult for children with ADHD. Sometimes they need another learning environment because they can't just sit there for, like for example, listening to a lecture for 50 minutes would be very painful. They have to get up, they have to walk around, come back, sit down. They're described like they have, they're on the go, like a motor's driving them, that they can't just sit and listen in the same way that you guys are doing right now. Um, they won't wait their turn, they'll just blurt out, they'll just start talking, they'll interrupt. They don't, um, essentially, they, they don't follow the rules of the classroom because it's just too difficult for them to just sit there and not participate, not do anything. So they can be impulsive and then can therefore be more at risk of harm. So a child with ADHD may not 
Sometimes it may be missed if they are in an environment, like if they're homeschooled on some of these boat kids out here who are actually, you know, able to learn in the, by, by doing. They do really well, you know, homeschooled or, or, or living on a boat with the parents, um, but they do they much more poorly in a classroom. So it's harder for them to do things they're not interested in or that require sustained attention. But if it's a video game, if it's something that they're, they're interested in boat building, they can spend hours doing it if they're really into it. So a lot of times the environment really matters in terms of masking or not masking the symptoms. And children with ADHD really tend to do worse in our standard educational system. So some of these inattentive symptoms um, or hyperactive, um, impulsive, they all have to be present. So you, basically ADHD is diagnosed by self-report, not objective testing. So you have to have symptoms or um, questionnaires filled out by usually the self-report or informant. It has to go back before the age of 12 has to present in two or more settings, impairment in social, academic, or occupational functioning, like we talked about in the beginning of lecture, and the symptoms do not occur in the course of another medical disorder. So if someone has epilepsy and ADHD, they, if they have inattention right around the time of their seizure, that's not going to count for ADHD. It has to be a separate manifest, even in the absence of any ongoing seizure activity. All right, so you can have ADHD combined, that's A1 and A2, ADHD predominantly inattentive, or ADHD predominantly hyperactive. So all three of those, are, they're, they're recorded separately, and we have our severity, mild, moderate, or severe. So when you record ADHD, you have to note whether they have sufficient criteria for the combined, the predominantly inattentive, or the hyperactive impulsive, and again, you can note the severity level. All right, we made it through all of our neurodevelopmental disorders, and um, have your break for the next 10 minutes.